Okay. Imagine you are cooking something. I don't know, whatever you want to cook. And you pull all the ingredients together and you put it all, maybe it's a baking thing. And you bake it and it's a cake, let's say. It's really great. You're super excited about it. You let it cool, you frost it, you put all the decorations on top to really make it just perfect. It looks mouth-watering. You're like, man, that thing looks great. All right, let's throw that away. And you just throw it away. You don't even eat it. Anyone in the room with you would think you've lost your mind. Why go to all that work to take all the ingredients, treat them really well, assemble them perfectly, cook it up, decorate it, put it on the table, and then just like throw it away? That's sort of like what happens to a lot of us when we spend time studying the Bible where we observe it really carefully. We look into the background, we study the cultural context, we study the genre, and we look at all that stuff, and then we ask questions of it. Well, what was the intention here, and what does the context mean, and hmm, what's going on here, and man, this is so interesting. And then we kind of close our Bible. And if we, we stop right there, I still think some good things can happen, because I don't think the Holy Spirit's going to let you off the hook that easy. But this final step of application is a pretty important step if you're going to like complete the whole process of Bible study. So we want to look at this right now. I will say this, though. Of all the steps, I think if you do the first two very thoroughly and naturally, like carefully look at the text, I think it's going to be unavoidable that the Holy Spirit will be bringing up stuff in your heart, and this won't be automatically happening. But there's still some really helpful tips I think we could look at here. So today, uh, we want to talk about application. We're going to start off with the when. We're just going to remind ourselves, when should you apply the word? Well, over the method, remember, if observation is first, there's a logical order. You've got to build your whole interpretational scheme on what you observe. So you're looking at the genre and the words and the verbs and all that. And then after that, you're going to interpret all that information you find, which basically... You're just going to take all your notes and ask questions about them. After that is when uh, application falls. Application falls. That's the last part here. We end up making some mistakes or errors, and so we're just going to talk about a couple of errors that I think are pretty common when we go to apply the Bible. So the first error that we want to talk about is when we neglect application. We neglect application. I think this is the one we normally think about. If I were to say which step of Bible study is the most forgotten, usually I think we think of application. And it's true. We get so into the Bible that we don't stop to meditate. And I don't mean like, oh, you know, empty your mind. I mean like chewing on it, thinking about it. You know how cows eat? I don't know if we want to get that gross after we just ate lunch. But some of you know because you just started laughing. Let's just say they get the most out of every calorie they eat. We'll just say it that way. But when you meditate, you're bringing back up a thought again, and you're just pondering it throughout the day. That can be missing when we study the Bible. We get really fascinated with the background, really intrigued by what it's saying. And then we walk away, and we go about our day, and we don't ever try to pull that back up in our mind. Well, the, that discipline of pulling it back up in our mind, that's meditation. That's actually Colossians 3, 1, where it says, set your mind on things above or seek the things that are above. That's like the essence of application. If you keep pulling back up what you learn from the scriptures, the Spirit's going to apply it to your life whether you want him to or not. 
So we can neglect it and we can become like the person in the book of James. So James says that the word of God is like a mirror. And when we look into the word of God, it shows us what we look like. And so if there's a a bug on my face like a moment ago that Sandy pointed out, I would have seen that, but I didn't have a mirror right in front of me. See? But when you go to the word of God and then you walk away and don't do anything about it, it's like someone who walks up to a mirror, sees this giant mud spot right here, like maybe you got hit in the face. Oh man, I should do something about that. And then you walk away and you don't do anything. So, excuse me. Application is that last step and we will often neglect it. The second kind of a mistake I think that we make when it comes to application is we end up elevating application. Elevating application. This is where we make it the main or the only step that we care about. We open the Bible and we're really excited to see what it's going to say about our life, but in our excitement, we don't really take seriously what we're seeing as far as the context goes or something else like that. And in America, where we're fast, you know, we got fast food and we got all kinds of instantaneous stuff. You want to watch a movie, just pull it up right away. That pragmatic, instantaneous culture that we live in can tend to rub off when we come to our Bibles. And so we don't want to do the long, continuous work of looking carefully at what God's Word says. We just kind of want to get to the part where it matters about us. In one sense, that's just selfishness. That's a little weird. The Bible's meant to change you, but if I'm coming to the Bible to know the Lord and I'm not sure how that works, then I want to make sure I'm focusing on him first and what his words say. After that, it will definitely affect our lives. We just want to make sure that we don't jump ahead of the process and skip that. Now, the last thing I would say is that we have like a distorting kind of application, a distorting kind of application. This is where we start to get really close, and then we think we see something, and before we test it too much, we kind of just go off into our own little world and come up with our own little applications. So the example I often use in class is there's a chapter in uh, Revelation, chapter 3, and it's a letter to the church of Laodicea. At the very beginning, Christ says this. He says, oh, I wish that you were hot or cold, but you as a church are lukewarm. Mm, if you're just hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out, like vomit you out of my mouth. So we see that, and for me, this happened to me. I just took my cultural definition of what hot and cold mean. What does hot and cold mean today? Like, I mean, I know it's hot water and cold water, but if I say that person's really hot and cold, what do I usually mean by that? They're happy, and then they're down in the dumps, sad. Or if I said that, everything for that person is like black and white. What I mean are opposites. It's either yes or no. So I took that idea to the Bible, and I didn't really do much study, and I jumped right to the application part. So I thought hot meant fully committed, on fire for God. And then I thought cold meant like basically being an atheist. What's the problem with that? The Bible says in that verse, Christ wants me either hot or cold. But I think cold means an atheist. Lukewarm, I thought, was like, you're a Christian and you're trying. You know, you're reading your Bible, you're studying, you're trying to walk with God. Ah, but it doesn't always work out. and You kind of fail at times. So I thought that middle version was like a bad thing. Well, that's partly because I got my observations and interpretations wrong, but it's also partly because I came really quick and I didn't want to do any study. I just want to know what does this mean for me right now? And I veered off into this path where I thought the Bible was telling me to live like an atheist. By the way, 
The Bible doesn't tell you to ever live like an atheist, okay? That should have been my first clue. Cover to cover. I never would have seen that anywhere else. And so I get to this part. That's not what I should have thought. So application, you can have some problems in application. But do you notice that all three of these that we have talked about, what would have sorted it out in each one of these situations? It's actually better. Yeah, it's the first two steps. If I had just observed very carefully, maybe done some background study, if I had had some clear interpretation based on that observation, it would have naturally flowed right over here to application. So personally, I think application is one of those steps that if you get the first two right, you're just automatically going to slot right into the good application. Now, there are some stuff we could talk about, I think, that are helpful. So let's talk about some good applications. What's a good application? First of all, a good application is something that's going to be based on a principle in the text. A principle in the text. Well, what's a principle? Well, when we say that, we usually mean like some sort of a timeless truth. So this is true way back in the day, but it's also true today. Let's go back to Obadiah. Remember Obadiah? Remember my friend? Okay. So he read this verse, your friends are out to get you, your enemy, your allies are going to uh, come and steal or get you or whatever. Now he, he reads that text, and we really quickly identified on Monday, that doesn't apply to us, that was to Edom, right? I do think there's a principle there. I do think there's a principle there. Why was God going to judge Edom? Does anyone have a good guess or a thought? You can just shout it out if you want. They were turning their backs on Israel. Yeah, that's a really good point, but why would, that's good, so, but why would God care if they turned their backs on Israel? Who? What's that? Yeah. They were sort of siblings or relatives. They were distant relatives. Yeah, so there's kind of a family connection, but I mean, okay, there might be something else. Too. These are really good answers, by the way. Is there any other reason God would feel compelled to protect Israel? There we go. Chosen nation, covenant language. Do you remember the blessings and the cursings in Deuteronomy? God says, hey, if you obey me and you do these things, I will bless you. And not only that, other nations who bless you, I will bless them. But if a nation curses you, I will curse that nation. If you disobey me, you're going to be cursed yourself. So God had this economy in how he dealt with Israel that was based on a covenant. We don't have that today. That's not how we interact with God. But that's how Israel did. And so if you went up against Israel in the Old Testament, you were not just going up against Israel. You were going up against God. Now, if you were an Israelite, and you see the bad guys coming in, and they wipe you out and take you away, do you think God would have failed you on his covenant? If you didn't know it, you might think you're being unjustly punished, but what was God actually doing for Israel right then? He was actually being faithful to his word. He said, look, if you don't live according to the covenant, I'm going to punish you because you're my son, and I love you, and I discipline a son that I love. If you turn, I will bring you back. What happens? God is faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his promise. I think when you look at Obadiah, even though it's the story of another nation being judged for being happy about Israel's deportation, we can see something about the character of God that was true back then and is now true today for us. 
Back then, God said, this is what I'm going to do. Did he do it? Yes. Is there anything God has said in the New Testament that he would do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Loads of stuff. Uh, Go, therefore, unto all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Son, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. So there are times probably in life where you don't feel like God is with you. Is God faithful? Yeah. He's with you. you. You just may not realize it right then. There's plenty of promises in the New Testament that God will take care of us. He'll provide for us. We'll never be left without him. So the same God in the Old Testament who exhibited the character of faithfulness that his people would trust in him is the same God that in the New Testament, when he gives a command and says he will do something, I can trust that same God because I have seen his faithfulness all through the Bible. So here, do you see the difference between like a principle based on the text? There, we see God's character, and that I can apply as an encouragement to me because I see that throughout the scriptures. So a good application will be based on that sort of a thing, not what the meaning of the word friend means and what your personal situation is right now. All right, the second kind of an application that's really good is that it will be, oh, sorry, this is accurate to the author's intention. See, I should have said that. It's based on a life context, a life context. When I say that an application is based on a life context, what I mean is that it's accurate to the situations in your own life. So if I say, oh, God is faithful to his promise, so I can trust the promises that God has made, I then need to look into my own life to see, hey, is there somewhere God has promised something that perhaps I'm beginning to doubt? So in 1 Corinthians 10.13, I believe, it says, No temptation has taken you except what is common to man, but God is faithful and he will provide a way of escape that you may bear up under it. If you've ever had a temptation to sin, maybe it's your temper, maybe it's uh, stealing things, maybe you're a thief, maybe it's whatever it is, and you think, man, I never get out from under this, I can never beat this, I'm always there. God said he would be faithful, and yet this keeps happening. Do you see where... This principle to your life could be very applicable, but you've got to find out where it connects to your day-to-day life. Usually this part's, once you get very clear on your observation and very clear on your application, this comes very clear to you. So in in Philippians 4.13, when it said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we really nailed down that this is talking about contentment. It's good to say we should be content. Well, What about your own life's context? To really take that next step and apply it, you need to ask in your life right now, is there any area you're not content in? So just take one moment. Think through your life. Think through your finances. Are you content with how much money you have? Think through your friendships or your family. Are you content with the friends and the family that you have? Think of your career, your job, whatever takes the most of your time. Are you content in that? Are you content in staying at home and parenting children all day? Are you content in working long hours in an office in a thankful job? Thankless job. Of course, you'd be very content in a thankful job. Okay. Do do you see where this goes? You've got to take your life and now look and say, hey, am I being content? Is there an area in my heart 
that I am discontent about. So a good application will be based not just on a clear text, but on your own life's context. This can be helpful if you just write these two thoughts down in your Bible as you have your devotions to consider what the application is, like what the principle in the text is, but then ask about your own life context. This can be very, very helpful. Okay, so again, I'm going to talk about this book, The Noble Word. This is a really good book. Remember, it's really small. It's super cheap. I really like it. So Peter Kroll, he understands that sometimes your, our applications aren't very concrete. They're kind of abstract. They're out there. So he gives three spheres, he calls them, of application. And I find these to be very, very helpful when I'm walking through this process. So we're just going to share those. The first sphere is the head. Actually, I'll just put all three up so you can see them all. It's, it's very metaphorical. It's very easy. It's your head, your heart, your hands. Head, heart, hands. It's very easy to remember that. Head, heart, hands. They all start with H. They're alliterated. We're Baptists. See, this should work really well for us. We should be able to remember this no problem. Head, heart, hands. What's your head talking about? What he says there is, is there something in the passage that you learned that changes or affects the knowledge you have? I'll give you an example. When I was in Bible college, we were in doctrine class, and we were talking about the resurrection. This is quite embarrassing. Oh, I think it was before Bible college, but it wasn't much before. I was reading a book, that's what it was. And the book was talking about Christ, and it said that when Christ rose from the dead, he rose bodily from the dead. Went right over my head. I kept reading the chapter, and it was very clear that it was a physical, like his physical body rose from the dead. Now, I know you might be thinking, okay, why are you talking about this? My whole life, I thought he rose from the dead as like a ghost, like, like an immaterial being, like he didn't actually have a body anymore. He was just kind of a floaty around thing. Well, the book then started taking me to passage after passage after passage that explained how this worked. It was a very easy way for me to think, oh, what happened there? Well, some knowledge changed. There's something I didn't know that I learned. The Laodicea passage, what's hot, what's cold, what's lukewarm. Immediately, I need to adjust how I think about that passage. Philippians 4.13 that we talked about. I can do all things through Christ. And I used to think that meant anything at all. But really, what's that passage talking about? Oh, contentment in your circumstances. So if you think about your head, like what's something you need to change? And this is really important. You can have a wrong idea, realize, oh, I need to think this, but because it's normal to you, you can go right back into that thought. And so if you're applying this, you might need to write something down or have like a memory device for you. One more example. I hate Disney. Just, sorry, I just got to say it. And I heard an amen, that's right, whoever said that, a good job. I know they're very creative, okay? And they're very funny. Um, what is the movie that's live action and it makes fun of Disney? What is it? It's like the princess and it's real life and they're making fun. I can't think, Enchanted. Oh, that one was so good. They're just making fun of themselves the whole time. It was great. This is why I hate Disney. I don't actually hate, well, I'm close. What does Disney teach? Follow your heart. This is bad. So my whole life, literally, I thought I was supposed to follow my heart. Grew up in a Christian home. I mean, I'm dense, though. My parents are telling me I'm, it's over my head. Okay. And what's culture say? Follow your heart. And what's my school system say? 
you need self-esteem. And so I had everything about what the Bible says about who I am backwards. And so I show up to personal evangelism at faith. And if you've ever taken that class, back in the day, you had to memorize something like 55 verses. It was so hard as a freshman. I'm telling you, it was rough. But one of them, he would, the, the teacher would write them on the board when you walked in. You'd talk about it, and then you'd have a quiz the next time. It was Jeremiah 17.9. Anyone know Jeremiah 17.9 by heart? By heart. <laughs> okay, a lot of you. Just start quoting it in unison. My heart is warm. <laughs> oh, that is so good. I wished I could have heard the coffee cove at the same time. I'm sure that would have been good. Yeah, the heart is deceitfully or desperately, deceitfully wicked and desperately sick, okay? Now, I looked at that verse. I'm not kidding. This is exactly what I said in my head. That's not right. You're supposed to follow your heart. That's like the best thing. One moment later, but that's the Bible. I didn't know what to do. Huh? And I'm, I'm not joking. I know you're like laughing. This guy's the biggest idiot ever. Yeah. I mean, you should know that by now. As a freshman, I literally didn't know what to, I'm staring at this thinking, but, but wait a second, that, that can't be right, but that's the Bible and the Bible's right. I'm so confused. It shouldn't have been confusing. Why was I confused? Because I had been enculturated to think that my heart was the best thing about me. And whatever it is, I just need to do what its impulses are telling me. And it took me time to unlearn that. So many times I'm studying the Bible or I'm talking with someone, and we're dealing with what the Bible says about my heart. It's a knowledge issue. I need to unlearn old things that I know and relearn truths from Scripture so my mind can be transformed. I have a Bible in my office. It's, I put it on my Amazon wish list, and I got it for Christmas last year from my mother. It is an NIV, NIV Faith Girls with a Z teen little Bible. It's like this little compact Bible. It is pink, and I think it has a big butterfly on the front, or it's a big heart. And it says, follow your heart. And one of these days, I'm going to take it to Dr. Little and say, can you please, like, you know how you put your name on your Bible? You get it. Can you please put Jeremiah 17.9 as the name of the Bible? Because that's a horrible thing to write in a Bible, but I never would have known that before. I totally would have, I totally would have taken it hook, line, and sinker. So sometimes your applications are not necessarily an action you're going to go do or something you need to stop uh, doing because you've been doing the wrong thing. Sometimes your applications can be, oh, I had something totally wrong and I need to work to learn the correct answer so I don't go back into those old ways of thinking. All right, let's talk about your heart. Man, what are you living for? What do you, what do you desire? What do you want out of your life? Sometimes the best thing about the Bible is that it gives us an accurate picture of the good life. The good life. Advertisers present it. Television shows present it. I mean, you, you see some ad for pizza, and it's this family playing on the beach, and they are all perfectly physically fit. And the children are totally behaved, and all of them have perfectly white straight teeth. And then it's time for lunch, and they're eating a delivery pizza or something. That's great. And how did you get it to the beach? Who knows? But what are they presenting right there? Your life could be this good, too. If you just had our pizza. I mean, it's like silly things like that, but you know what? That influences us. Or your friend has this life and it's wonderful and it's exactly what you want, and you find yourself saying, Man, if I just had that, then I would be content. Well, 
a lot of times what the Bible is going to do is it's going to correct those thoughts for you. It's going to straighten out what you think is good. I remember studying the Bible and seeing that suffering and trials are a normal part of a Christian life. And then I remember coming to the next level. Wait a second. The way God changes me is through trials and difficulties and suffering. That's actually what he says in James and a host of other places. Hmm. And yet, what was I longing for and desiring? Oh, I don't ever want to go through hard things. I just want to have an easy life. Now, I'm not saying pray for trials, by the way. I'm not saying that. But I needed to understand that this is an expected way of God training me to be the Christian that he wants me to be. And so my heart has to change what it desires. I can't desire peace, contentment, calmness all the time. I have to desire what? Well, God created me to work. He created me to do good works. He created me to be sanctified and to look like his son. I have to set my heart on those things. What am I setting my heart on right now? So that's a really good application too. Now, the third one is what we normally think of, our hands, the idea of our actions. Generally, we read the text and we think, okay, I know what that means, so what do I need to do now? It's like Ephesians 5 where it says the thief needs to stop stealing. Okay, what do you do with your hands? You steal things. And then what do you do in place of that? Well, you need to work hard with your hands. Why? So you have something to give to everyone else. Okay, I've been a thief. I know I need to stop this action. I need to start this action. I need to remember that the purpose of working hard is to be able to give my money away to people who need it. That's the traditional kind of application we think of. Don't not think about that. But don't forget about what the head and the heart aspects of application are too. This will, I think this will enliven or enrich your applicational time in your Bible study. One, a couple more thoughts and then we're going to have a quick Bible study. We're going to try to tie all this together in the text. There's a couple of ways to think about how the Bible is going to correspond to your life. There are some places where the Bible is going to correspond in a very direct way. Very direct. If you think about it, anytime the New Testament gives a command to someone in the church, that command is going to be something that's probably most likely for you. Paul would have said like something to Timothy that he would need to do in his local church. That may not apply to us. But anytime Paul's giving commands to the general church at large, those commands apply to us Almost one-to-one. We just, right away. Now, some commands, like greet each other with a holy kiss. Okay. Those are, there are going to be some cultural things we talk about. But cling to what is good, abhor what is evil, not thinking too highly of yourself, but thinking sober-mindedly. All of the instructions in the Bible for the church, that's going to apply very directly. So that's a pretty safe place to start if you're not sure about your Bible study. Another thought is the Gospels. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching his followers directly. So a lot of times when Jesus teaches something, it's going to be very, very close to what we would think. Sometimes he'll teach something in a Jewish context that relates to the Old Testament law. You've got to be careful with that. We don't follow the law. But those are very direct. They just right into our life. But there are other parts of the Bible that if we're going to make the application that's going to be more indirect. And so this would be like Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus where yearly Bible reading plans go to die. <laughs> so I'm not kidding. Twice in my life, I was a teen at the time, I thought, I'm going to read through the Bible. And I start in Genesis, 
It was great. If you've ever read through Genesis, it's like an action-packed book full of crazy stuff and lots of things happening. And then you get to Exodus, and it's very interesting. And then you get to Leviticus. And what is going on with this ram or this bull or I'm pouring grain onto the ground and giving it to a priest if I don't know that I sinned and I find out later that I sinned and you just basically give up. Is there anything in Leviticus that's going to apply to our life? I do think there is, but it's going to be very indirect. Let me just offer one thought for you. There's way more than that. I'll give you one thought. In Leviticus, all of the early sacrifices that you read about are sacrifices that are made for a situation where you didn't realize you sinned and later you found out you sinned. And so here's what you need to do for that sacrifice. And so you're getting a bull or a lamb or a whatever. None, in like the fir- at least the first five chapters, I'm sure, and I think it goes all the way to ten, none of them are for sins you know you've done and you willingly committed them. There are like no sacrifices for that. So what do you do if you're an Israelite? Well, later you find out you just appeal to the mercy of God. What does it tell you if God has a whole bunch of ways to deal with sins that you didn't even know you committed? What does that tell you about what God thinks about sin? Man, he takes it really seriously. Okay, here's a good way to indirectly apply that. If God takes sin that seriously, what what do you think about sin? Let's apply that. So we're using the head right now. What do I think about sin? Because in our culture, you know, we know that Jesus has forgiven us and he's paid for all of our sins. And so it's almost like a non-issue. Oh, it's okay if you sin. Jesus already paid for it. But in the Old Testament, we really see what God thinks of sin. Do I take sin that seriously? So that'd be a way you could apply Leviticus. And it would be something that would be nourishing and instructing for you. Secondly, Proverbs. Proverbs. I love this book so much. Oh, it's so good. Proverbs is uh, poetry. It is terse tellings of the truth. Terse just means brief, short. Each proverb is not trying to tell you the whole story. It's trying to tell you one little bit of it in a way that's really memorable. So if you think of a pie, and you've got slices to that pie, and maybe they're like really small slices, each proverb is like one slice of the pie, but the book of Proverbs is the total picture of truth that it's presenting. So I can apply it, but I gotta remember what I'm looking at. And sometimes I gotta understand like what the poetry is saying and how it's working. So some places in the Bible, they apply, it just takes a little more work. So if you think about direct and indirect, that can help you too. All right, it's time to try to tie all this together. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're gonna go ahead and try to do bits and pieces of all three steps to this passage together as a group. I'll probably give you opportunity to do it in your mind, but then I'll probably have to tell you. But you're pretty good at yelling stuff out, so maybe I'll just let you yell things out. Just like I would assign in class, we're going to read the section two times all the way through. So I'll start. Follow along with me. Romans chapter 12. I actually might stop at a certain point and go back, you know, for sake of time. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, or brethren like all of you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing 
you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, excuse me, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but rather give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a really brief chapter. It's not one of the longest. It's not like one of the gospel chapters that goes on for like two full pages. And there's a lot of very applicable statements in here. This is written from a church, like to a church, and we're, we're in the church today. And so much of this will be applicable. Now we're going to read part of this a second time. So I know you're like, we just read this. Hey, this is what you got to do when you're studying the Bible. So let's read it again. Now you can be taking notes if you want to. Back to verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, interesting, it says, therefore. Did you notice that before? Have you ever had someone ask you what therefore is for? When you see a therefore, what do you say? What's it there for? Good job. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Hmm. Sacrifice. We were just talking about Leviticus. What would a Jew think if they heard the word sacrifice in this day? I mean, they would have thought of the temple sacrifices, right? The animals that you just killed and put up there and burnt. That's what would have been in their mind. Like, we think of sacrifice in a metaphorical sense today, but the Jews would have thought of that very bloody act that the Old Testament prescribed. Hmm. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your, my Bible says spiritual worship. Can you just shout out what your Bible says, if you have a different version? Reasonable service, very good. The idea is logical like reasonable is like a word logic or logicon, and it means this happened and it's totally expected that the most rational thing you would do next is this next step. 
So when I worship God, it is a natural understanding of everything God has done for me. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Interesting. How do I try to conform to the world? Like, what are the ways I'm trying to be like the world? That would be worth thinking about, wouldn't it? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, let's just put up a couple of thoughts here. What's the genre of this book? We talked about genre on Monday night in the observation section. Well, this is an epistle. It is written to a New Testament church. It's written to the church in Rome, and it's giving them some instructions on how to live. I'll give you a little bit more background on the book. In chapter 1, Paul says, this is the gospel. The gospel is powerful. It is the most powerful thing in the universe. And I'm going to explain to you what that gospel is. Middle of chapter 1, he immediately starts off talking about how sinful humanity is. He goes on for a couple of chapters. He talks about how sinful the Gentiles are. Then he talks about how sinful the Jews are, even though they have the law. It didn't really help them. They were still sinful. In chapter 3, he says, everybody is sinful and no one is going to get off the hook. Then he says, but God is rich in mercy. He talks about what he did for Abraham. He, talks, he starts to answer all kinds of questions. Hey, if God's grace is so free, and if we just call out and ask for saving, does that mean we just keep sinning? Absolutely not. You're not under the law. You wouldn't keep doing that. Oh, if we're not under the law, can we keep sinning? No, 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 because you know God doesn't want that. It's question after question, clarifying, if I'm saved, and this is the good news about God, what happens? In 9 through 11, there's this interlude about Israel, and he lays out how to walk by, the fl- walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh, in 6, 7, and 8. So when you get to 12, he's told you all about how you get saved, all about what God's done for you, how to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, and what it looks like to walk in the Spirit and not according to your old sinful flesh. This is where... Chapter 12 comes in. So that's the genre. It's a letter, and he's addressing that big subject. What kind of correspondence, applicationally, would this book have to our lives? Well, this book is going to have very direct correspondence. It's written to a New Testament church talking about how salvation works and what the results of that salvation ought to be in my life. Are you a Christian in the New Testament church? Have you been saved by the glory, glorious gospel of Jesus? If so, all of this is going to be applicable right now to your life. So it's very direct application. Let's talk about some words. There's a number of key words in this passage that help to understand and think about. So Friday night we talked about looking at words and the value of that. Let's look at a few of them. First of all, therefore, I already hinted at this, when you see a therefore, you want to say, why is it here? And so in verse 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Okay, he's appealing to us. If you appeal to someone, it's like a way of nicely asking someone to do something. If I command you, I'm telling you to do it. If I appeal to you, I'm just trying to be gracious about it, but I'm also really serious and I really want you to do it. He says, I appeal to you, what's the basis of his appeal. My Bible says, by the mercies of God. Guess what chapters 1 through 11 are all about? God's mercy toward you and God's mercy toward me. After everything God has done to save us and to continue to change us more and more into the image of his son, this is what Paul is going to ask New Testament Christians to do. And he's going to base it on all the good things God's done for us. What is his call? 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now a Jew would hear living sacrifice and would think that is unusual. Every sacrifice they've ever seen was a dead one. In fact, if it was living, it would probably very much resist going up to be the sacrifice. And so the imagery to a Jew right now would have been a willing sacrifice, like a bull that just walks up and lays down on the hot coals, a sheep that just hops on up to be consumed by the fire. That's what the Jew would have thought of. That's a little hard for us because we're separated from that context. But a living sacrifice is one that willingly gets on the altar and willingly stays put to serve the Lord. That would have been a very uh, impactful statement to those believers in the church in Rome. Let's talk about the verbs that follow. The verbs. Now, these are passive verbs. We haven't talked about verbs that are active and passive. Okay, I'll give you an example. This is the clicker. I'm going to talk about throwing. I throw the clicker at you. Okay, that's an active way of saying that in the verb. I'm doing the throwing and the throw, and it's going to you. But if I say, I am thrown by the clicker, well, I'm not doing the throwing anymore. The clicker's doing the throwing, and there must be some demon possessing it, that it's picking me up and throwing me, okay? So passive verbs mean that the subject's not really doing the thing. It's happening to the subject. Notice what the text says. My Bible says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. And when I teach this at the college, I'm rude. I'm mean, and I trick my students. I immediately say, now if you have not had this yet, you can't tell people when you hear this. There's one student here. You cannot reveal this when I try to trick the class, okay? I tell them, oh man, look, we're not supposed to conform to the world. How do you go out and try to conform to the world? Now I'm immediately asking you the wrong question but you may not even have picked it up. The students always have great options. Well, we try to be like in this area, and we try to copy the world in this area, and we try to live like the world in this area, and we get this whiteboard full of really good things to identify that we should no longer be living like. And then I say, it's all wrong. Because that's not what this passage is talking about. If this passage says, don't love the world or the things of the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, then that whole whiteboard of things we try to do to love the world would be great to think about. But what does the verb say? It doesn't say don't conform. It says don't be conformed. If you've ever made those weird sugar cookies where like, you ha- it's not like the cutout thing. It's like the smasher, and it's like a bear, and you like smash it down, and it like puts an impression on the dough to try to like bake it out, or like a Play-Doh Fun Factory, like press the Play-Doh through the little thing, and it like makes it form a certain way. That's the idea. You're taking something and trying to press it into a certain pattern. If the world is trying to press you into its pattern, it isn't that you're actively doing anything. It's good for you not to actively do things to copy the world, by the way. But this passage is saying, watch out. The world is constantly trying to press you into its mold of how to live your life. So here, instead of thinking, how do I try to copy the world? I should be thinking, huh, wonder where the world's trying to press me into its mold that maybe I'm not thinking about. That's the right application here. So do you see how the the type of verb here is actually really, really important? And then what does it go on to say next? But be transformed. Now, 
That one's easy. I can't transform myself. Who needs to transform me? Well, it has to be Christ. It has to be his word. And so how does that happen? Well, the next statement there. The key word at this point is renewal. It's renewal. The way to stop conforming to the world or being conformed by the world and the way to put yourself in a place where you get transformed is to have renewal take place in your life. And that happens, I believe, through the word of God, a humble attitude, and the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. But on what level does that work? What does the text say next? What gets renewed? Uh-oh. Okay. Whew. I know it's like 322, so. It's your mind that gets renewed, right? I think that does mean your thinking. I think it does. But I also think it does include what we would call our heart. I think it's basically everything about you that's not physical. So that key word is really important to pay attention to. All right, lastly, we'll point out this. Look at the context. Uh, oh, I already talked about this one. Okay. If you were a Jew and you heard the sacrificial language, you would think of that sacrifice on the altar. And so that's helpful for us to think about. When I think of sacrificing for the Lord or giving my life over to him, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I should be obedient. I should follow the, all the commands in Scripture. I should be a kind person. And those are not wrong things to think. But what would the Jew think about right away that I'm probably not going to catch? He probably would have thought about the cost. Like that animal that chooses to get up there, it's going to cost that animal everything. So the call here from Paul into my life and into your life is to be that living sacrifice that willingly obeys, willingly desires to please the Lord, but there's also the cost that it's going to cost you everything. You don't get to have your own will anymore. You don't get to have your own life anymore. It's okay, though, because the Lord is glorious and living for him is great. But I think that's where a lot of our struggles in Christianity come from. We, we want to hold on to the things that we want to hold on to. How did we see all this? Like, How did we pick up on these ideas in the text? If the Spirit is convicting you that maybe there's an area of your life that you're holding on to, and you realize, man, I need to be like that, 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 uh, that sacrifice. I need to willingly get up there and just give up on my life. That happened by looking carefully at what this text is communicating. By saying, what is it that God wanted me to know when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome and the Holy Spirit inspired it to be in the Bible today? That's what it took. And this can happen every single time you open your Bible and have devotions. It doesn't always look the same way, by the way. Sometimes you study and you learn some new things and there's not particularly anything that's going on. You're not like thinking, oh man, I need to give my whole life over to Christ right now. But the consistent, daily cultivating of this kind of Bible study, over time, it just transforms your walk with God. I recently read a quote, I don't think this is up on the, oh no, not yet, oh no, there's no homework. Don't think about that, don't think about that yet. I read a quote recently, it's by D.L. Moody, started Moody Bible College, and he said this, he said, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can to breathe in enough air for the next week or to eat enough food for the next month. You have to daily and frequently breathe. You have to daily and frequently eat. If the word of God is our nourishment, 
then we go back to it every day that we can. Um, Pastor Hartwig um, in Green, Iowa, said something to me really helpful last year when Robin and I were walking our difficult path in life. Uh, he was sitting down with me talking. He'd walked a path similar. And he said, you know, Andy, uh, you're going to walk through a really hard time. And you're going to need the Word of God. And you're not going to have much time to get into it. But every moment you can, you just need to get into the Word. Even if it's only for two minutes. And later that day, if you've only got two more minutes, get into it again. And get into it again. And so it was a new way of thinking, oh, I shouldn't be saying, can I get into the Word once today? I should be saying, how can I get into it frequently? If you think about the Bible like food, think about how you eat real food. If you look at me, you can tell I don't have a problem eating real food. I have a very faithful habit of eating food. I can regularly, consistently eat food. I mean, I can, I can find a way to snack every hour of the day. I'm telling you, this is, I mean, I'm over here, I'm over there, like, here's a snack, they're having a fellowship, I'm going to go to the gas station, get it. I mean, I, I can do this. And yet, I should probably treat the Bible the same way, if I can get into it just a little bit, every chance I have. Do I remember every meal that I eat? No, I remember some. Man, some meals were great. Uh, but sometimes I'm eating to nourish myself, and I don't necessarily remember it the next time. So sometimes we have this idea that if we have our devotions and it's not the most earth-shattering, memorable time in the Word of God, it didn't matter, and it was a waste. But I don't remember what I eat for breakfast every day, but I'm not saying that's a waste. i got to have my breakfast. i got to have my lunch. i got to have my afternoon snack. i got to have my 11 C's. And what is that? how do hobbits eat like all those meals all day long? i just got to have all that stuff, right? You don't always remember every meal, but you faithfully and consistently eat to maintain your health. It's the same with the scriptures. These are great principles, but they're not going to help you if you're not getting into the word regularly. These are great principles, but if you have no desire to follow the Lord in obedience and you just want to hold on to your sin, you're going to know more about the Bible, but it's not going to change how you live your life. So you need to be humble and you need to be faithfully digging into the Word. I love this thing. I love this stuff. This was so helpful when I learned all these principles. I don't do them every single time. When I open the Bible, I'm not always pulling out a piece of paper and writing O and I and A and writing all this down. But just understanding these things has changed the way I see the text, the way I look at it. And my hope for you is that as you work in the Bible yourself, you'll see the same thing. Okay. Surprise! You have homework. I'm a teacher, so I give homework. I'm not going to grade this homework, though. Okay, if you want to have taken this weekend of Bible study principles and you'd like to get a C, a grade of a C, then this is what you need to do. When you go home, when you go home, there we go, you need to keep these notes, and at least three days during the next week, I want you to sit down and try out these Bible study steps. Get a desk, set it up, turn off your TV, go in another room, get some coffee, whatever it takes. Not Folgers. Um, just whatever you've got to do, except for that one thing I just mentioned, okay? And sit down, and I know it's going to feel mechanical. You're going to be like, I'm writing this down, I'm taking notes. That's okay. When you go bowling and they put those bumpers in the gutters so you can't roll a gutter ball, you don't roll gutter balls. And you can feel like, well, I'm not really not rolling gutter balls. But what do you do? You practice, and eventually you don't need them. So this method feels fake, 
but it's something that teaches you how to think over time. So next week, three times. I want you to try this. And if you do that, you can think, Mr. Stearns would give me a C. Good job. But maybe you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I want a B. Here's how to get a B. Do the same thing, but do it for three full weeks. Every week, three times, get out a sheet of paper, take notes, ask questions about the context, and try to come up with concrete applications to your life. Three times, three weeks in a row. If you do that, you can say, I got a B. Mr. Stearns is really happy that I got a B. Good job. But I know some of you are the really nerdy students. Or you're the really OCD students, whatever you want to call yourself. (laughs) They're high achievers there. That's good. Okay, maybe that's better. (laughs) And you're thinking, I don't want a B. I want an A. Okay, all right, here you go. This is your assignment. If you want an A, you have to three times a week for three weeks get into the Bible with a friend or a group of friends. Oh, excuse me, once a week. I'm going to once a week for three weeks. So you do it on your own twice, but once a week you meet with some friends. You say, okay, we're going to try to put these Bible study practices in practice and actually carry them out. If you do that for three weeks, then you can say, Mr. Stearns would give me an A. So that's my homework for you. That's what I think you should do. Now, just, I mean this. I'm not actually going to give you a grade. So if you email me or Facebook me like, I did it, Mr. Stearns, I'll be like, I mean that from the bottom of my heart, but I'm not giving you a transcript with a grade on it. I can't do that. It's not legal. But in your heart, you can have a grade of A, B, or C, and I'll even give you like a smiley face emoji. Okay, thank you very much. I think I'm going to pray to end this, and then my assumption is someone's going to sneak up here and it's going to scare me, so I will uh, not let that bit repeat it again. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you show us. Thank you, Father, that you love us unconditionally. If we walk out of here and we never put these things into practice, Father, you love us. In fact, Father, before we did anything for you, and when when we hated you, when we were against you, when we lived our own way, you loved us. Father, that's what you do. You love us. Father, thank you that this weekend is not another thing to do to earn your love. It's just a weekend to learn how to know you better. We are thankful for that. I pray, Father, for all of us here today that we would think through these methods of uh, really helping ourselves to get our sinful hearts out of the way so we can get into the text. We can get into the words that you've revealed. Father, words that you say are profitable the words that will correct us, the words that will reprove us, the words that are worth being taught, and the words that over time will train us to be righteous people who look a lot more like your son each day. We thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for the way that you have, in your wisdom, chosen to make this happen. Pray, Father, for your grace as we take uh, these principles forward. I pray, Lord, that many of us would uh, do this and we would see fruit of it in our own lives. Father, we love you. I pray for a safe trip home today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.